Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. Many of you made it. So as you know, most likely this weekend is a weekend where our country especially will be celebrating Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, an extraordinary man that did an extraordinary thing. And so uh, today is, is, is sort of tradition. I, I, I want to preach on this whole issue of racial reconciliation and reconciliation in general. And and to help us do that, I, I, I want us to think about a man named John Perkins. Some of you know who he is, perhaps. He's, he's probably one of the most uh, significant men I know in the Christian civil rights uh, movement. Uh, he is a devout Christian and, and has established all sorts of, of, of uh, foundations and, and, and training, and, and he's just, and, and yet he's a very passionate pastor, preacher, activist. Uh, he, he brings it all together in a, in a very beautiful way. And so I want to start with just telling you a little bit about his story um, that I think will give context and flesh to our passage. See, John Perkins' story is, is really um, pretty remarkable. It's a powerful account of reconciliation in the face of, of incredible and intense and most especially I want to use the word hostile opposition in Mississippi in 1960s. He was the son of a sharecropper. He grew up in poverty. His brother was shot by a deputy marshal and died in his arms. He decided to leave and he went to California where he received some education. But it was during these years that John Perkins came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now he knew that he couldn't stay when he became a Christian. He, he felt the call to go home. He couldn't run away from from the turmoil and the mess that was happening in the South. And so, so he went back to Mississippi, and again, there was more violence. Uh, he was eventually arrested for his march and, and protest, and, and while being held in a jail cell on trumped-up charges, he was beaten unconscious by police whose faces he could only describe as being, quote, twisted with hate. Now, what I want to do is, is read from his autobiography about this moment in his life, this season in his life. It's a pretty uh, significant reading, so sit back and enjoy uh, he, him telling you this story about himself and what happened. Sitting in the jail, he, I pick up. And they came back over there and beat me to the floor and stomped on me. They made me get the mop and blood, and blood was coming all out of my head and they made me get the mop and mop the floor. And they would hit me and kick me as I mopped up the floor. And then I got the floor mopped and the officers put me back in a room. And when they found out the FBI wasn't coming, they started beating me up again and cursing at me. And then they took me in the fingerprint room and started taking my fingerprints. And then they started torturing us. It was horrifying. I couldn't even imagine that this was happening. One of the officers took a fork that was bent down and he brought that fork up to me and he said, have you seen this? And he took that fork and he put the fork up into my nose. Then he took that fork and he pushed it down into my throat. And then they took me over there and beat me to the ground. And Officer Thames, he was doing most of the talking and then they beat me to the floor and Mr. Lloyd-Jones was sitting down on the front desk and he got up and he stomped me, and by this time, I was almost dead. 
They started torturing us. It was horrifying. I couldn't even imagine that this was happening. Is how he begins. He will pick up and then say at the end, they were like savages, like some horror out of the night, and I just can't forget their faces. So twisted with hate, it was like looking at a white-faced demon. Hate did that to them. But you know, I couldn't hate back. When I saw what hate had done to them, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I didn't even want to hate to do to me what it had already done to those men. So after surviving that unjust beating, John could not hate back. He could only pity them. Think about that. What's happening here? What kind of a man, what kind of transformation has happened to a man that could go through that and not hate back? Well, that night, he tells us how he prayed. In summary, he prayed this, quote, God, if only you'll get me out of this jail alive. I really want to preach the gospel that will heal these people too. You see, the most terrible thing about the situation in the South was that so many of the folks who were either violently racist or who participated in discrimination called themselves Christians. And so the question that he raises at the end of this story is this, quote, the question on my mind was whether or not Christianity was strong enough of a force. Was it stronger force than racism? Well, his life will answer that question by way of example. For the rest of his life, he spent an enormous amount of time preaching the gospel to both the black and the white. An enormous amount of time bringing the two together in the gospel in the most powerful of ways. He established an organization. If, you were, if, if any of you have been involved in inner city work, I was for four years in Atlanta, Georgia, one that was highly influenced by him. Uh, he started something called a Christian Community Development Association, CCDA. And it is now the, the, the premier and most significant movement in America that relates to uh, uh, racial reconciliation, empowerment, uh, and, and community development within the inner city. And so we hear the answer answered by John in his life, and yet today I want us to find that answer in Scripture. I want us to find the answer to racial reconciliation, just saying it out loud seems preposterous. But we really do believe. If John Perkins can believe it, we really do believe that the gospel is that powerful. And so I'm going to try to piece that out for you if I can in the short time that we have. And to do that, of course, you've heard read already the vision of Isaiah. A vision where those who were once enemies, those who were once powerful in relationship to the powerless, how the vision of Isaiah is that one day those will be reconciled, those will lie down together, which is the most intimate and the most vulnerable place you could find yourself.
Imagine a lamb lying down with a lion to sleep. That image, of course, is picked up, not exactly, but by Ephesians. And here it relates it specifically to Christ and the meaning of the cross. Again, let me read it. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing hostility. Let's pray. Speak into our life, Lord. Speak into our context. A context is just fraught with hostility, with oppression, with judgmentalness, with gracelessness. Father, we see it not just in the racial, we see it in the class, we see it in gender, we see it in education levels. Everywhere there is just this animosity against the other. Strangers living on the same planet. Father, help us to see and hear your word. And may Christ be glorified in the most ironic of ways. In the cross. In his humility. In his sacrifice. May he be glorified that he might glorify you. We pray our Father in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to give you the big picture a little bit, Ephesians in chapter 1 uh, begins to talk about a mystery, a great mystery. And the mystery of the gospel is a very important theme throughout this book. Uh, it, it starts off in chapter 1 where Paul defines this mystery as the unification of all things in Christ, verse 10. And he relates this to the gospel of salvation. He'll pick it up again in chapter 3, this use of the word mystery, and here he refers to the stewardship of that grace of God, which is given to Paul, verse 2, the mystery that's been given to him and how it is he's to steward this mystery. And he describes that stewardship as a mystery that was made known by, to Paul by a revelation, a mystery that is the mystery of Christ as revealed to Paul by the Holy Spirit. And then quite explicitly, he, he states the result of that mystery that the mystery will result in the Jews and the Gentiles' reconciliation together as, quote, fellow heirs, end quote, of the, quote, of the same body, end quote, because together they are in Christ. Let's pick up now with our passage, as I've read it already, this, this, this idea of hostility. What's going on here? It's a world, if you will, before Christ. Once before Christ, in the mind of Paul, the world was estranged from God. They were strangers to God. That theme goes over and over here. Stranger, stranger, stranger. Alienated. And by various temporal and fleshly differences, the world was then estranged from each other. So already the thesis begins that there is a correlation between being stranger to God, a stranger unto God, and a stranger unto one another. Already the correlation's been built. 
in this very first concept. The world was estranged from each other. It was a world of strangers, you could say, that he describes in verses 11 through 12. And worse still, is a world then of hostility against strangers. But it all starts with strangers. Now, what do we mean? Well, you can speak of this in racial terms, as he does here. This was experienced even within the redemptive community in Paul's day. Can Christians be racist? Well, a lot of what Paul is writing against is just that. Christians who have not yet quite figured it out. Therefore, he says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What is racism? Well, here we begin to see that it's an intermingling of ethnicity, of history, and of class. I want you to listen to that very carefully. We think in racism, if we've thought about it slightly and casually, is something about uh, race. But what is race? What does it mean to be black or white or, or brown or whatever? Well, see, it always involves a history. It's history that biases you one way or the other towards a certain class, a certain economic strata, perhaps. No different then as now. The Gentiles, a people who were once enemies of God in the Old Testament. Laws which were provided to protect them from their enemies of God. But always within the strain that God wants all the nations to come to God. we got to keep those parsed out. That there is this overwhelming uh, uh, history of redemption focus on God's reuniting the nations. A kind of a undoing what Babel did when the nations, because of their pride, had to be separated. Their sin separated them. But they needed to come back together in the redemptive uh, way of thinking. And so here we have this idea of the intermingling of ethnicity, history, and class. What does someone say hate? about another race? Is it their skin color? Is it a, a philosophy or a theology of an inferior versus a superior race, however it is said? Maybe. Maybe that's a conclusion that, that some might have, have come to, and for sure they would act like it when they would treat someone inferiorly without the kind of respect that they ought to treat them. And so to be sure, you can start to get to the sin problem of, of negating or forgetting that all men, all women were created equal in the sight of God, that we really were. You go to Genesis, man and female, and it's the beginning of the human race in terms of a covenant sort of, of, of a history, and we are all made in the image of God. There's no exception. That is huge. That's our philosophical starting point. But to limit race to simply, well, we, of course, I believe all people of all races have been made in the image of God, is to severely miss what racism is. It's that. I suspect no one in this room would make an argument uh, that we're all created uh, in the image of God, all people of all races, gender, etc. 
but it's more than that. Because through time, different cultures, different families, if you will, went through different histories, histories that impacted their relationship to the world. We see it particularly in a classist system, say, in Egypt right now, where to be born as a certain race can also be born into a certain class. Now we've got socioeconomic issues. We've got empowerment issues and power and money and but more especially there's the there is the, the identity issue begins to form an identity that one culture or one race might form about itself in relationship to another culture who is say underprivileged or is undereducated who is under uh, empowered with the opportunities for for wealth or whatever it be there's always a history and then the history gets conflated with the race and then, of course, that results in class. What is it that people detest about the other? Often, if you really listen carefully, it's whatever brokenness comes from whatever class status. And it goes in both ways. The wealthy class has a kind of brokenness that's quite ugly. And perhaps those who are of the underclass or even the underprivileged class can see that ugliness in a way that the upper class can't see it. And then vice versa, the upper class or the privileged class or however you want to define it will see an ugliness in the mannerisms and the, and the work ethic, you could say. And it goes both ways. And so they begin to see, and all of a sudden we're reacting. I don't want my neighborhood to look like that. I don't want my, my kids to be like that. I don't want to be like that in our world, that kind of selfishness, that kind of whatever. Uh, you, and all of a sudden we throw language. And then there's deeper still. It starts to intermingle with identity, a person who grows up, and who am I? Are you someone who believes in the future? Are you someone, and therefore would delay gratification for it, or are you someone who's a survivalist? And do you see, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just barely, 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 barely scratching the surface of this conversation, but I want you to understand it's just a lot more complicated, and it's that way here in this passage. You see, race in the ancient biblical world was a social construct based on special characteristics that had nothing to do with pseudo-scientific, if you will, racism. It wasn't this scientific theory that made one class less than another. It wasn't even a philosophical system so much that made one class greater than another. It was the social construct of a history. Where were these people who were called Gentiles in the life of the first Christian church? Where did they come from? What was their history? What does that history have to do with the history of Israel? How does those two histories come together in Christ? Well, you may think today as you sit in this room, oh, we have it bad, but I might argue to you that the Jew-Gentile hostility was as bad <laughs> as it has been in this country. You see, understanding the nature of the past and present social constructs will help us to understand what really does and does not divide us. We must accurately diagnose the problem. There's a sin in racism, as we'll see. 
but there's also a history. A history that would need to be responded to not with hostility, but with other things, as we'll see. And so we go to the hostility, verse 14. He calls it the hostility of the flesh. That is a hostility, as I've just uh, tried to articulate, that is driven by or derived from a worldly distinction. Now, this is key. A fleshly hostility. It's not a hostility against the soul, if you will. It's of these socioeconomic, political kinds of identities that begin to feed the clash of this hostility, the hostility of the flesh. And then sin intertwines and it's pride. But all pride, you see, is really insecurity. Think about what racism is here and to us. It's the pride that wants to justify myself, to feel good about myself, to have a good self-image, and I will do that by either identifying with my family, genealogy, that would be familyism, or perhaps identify with a, quote, race. That would be racism. Now, while it's true that majority races tend to have an upper hand in, in the issue of power and money, they all go together, it's not true that, that, that the, under, the, the minority race is any less racist, if you mean by that, that they derive or we derive their identity, their fundamental identity from their racial affiliation. A minoritarian has a certain kind of power and identity that a majoritarian doesn't, and vice versa. This is getting really complicated, and that's all I want you to hear. It is complicated. It's going to take something big to unravel this whole thing. And I know what I'm doing right now, and I'm setting myself up for an amazing failure. Because I've said to you, the gospel can do it. And I hope and pray that God will give me the grace to help you see it from this scripture. But verse 14, the hostility of the flesh. Verse 16, animosity. These are tough words. Let me give you a feeling for, for the way it was expressed in that day. For instance, Leviticus 20, 26, speaking of another race, another nation, if you will, another ethnos, the word nations, but overlapped with the idea, too, that they worshipped another god and they were also unbiblical, or if you will, they were, they were uh, idolaters, and, Christ, and God was trying to protect them, separating them from those races from that sense. But it seems as though the Jews, by the time they get to Paul, had negated the call of God to Abraham, or even to Adam, for that matter, that the, the vision of God was to bring all races together into a higher identity, an identity, of course, in God, Yahweh, as their children, as his children. And so we begin in Leviticus 20, I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. So far, that's pretty safe. You could say that today. Christians, I have separated you from non-Christians in a sense that you belong to me. You have another identity. Jubilee, this is after the Bible. This is closer now to where Judaism became very political. 
And listen to the way it's, it's repeated, but in a different way. Separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways contaminated and despicable and abominable. And then the epistle to Aristides in around 139 B.C. In his wisdom, the legislator surrounded us with unbroken palisades and iron walls to prevent our mixing with any of these other peoples in this matter. So to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences, he hedged us in on all sides, strict observances connected with meat and drink and touch and hearing and sight after the manner of the law. Now, you see where this is going? There was, in short, verse 14 calls it the dividing wall now of hostility. You know what that wall was? It was the partition that separated the court of Gentiles from the temple. Now, that wall was intended to be a means of grace. We do it every time we come to the table. We carefully distinguish the table and what it means and who it is offered to in order that they might have assurance of salvation from those for what it means and who it's not offered to insofar as it would be a hypocrisy and it would enable their unbelief. In other words, there's a, we call it sometimes fencing the table. But the intent of the fence is to invite them to the table. It's to clarify so that they don't do it nominally and, and thoughtlessly that there really is a, a transformation that we want you to experience, the transformation from a works-based life to a grace-based life. And until that has been us understood, then this whole thing is, means nothing. And if, you, if, we were to, if we were to say nothing, we would be complicit in you never honestly hearing the gospel. And so there's a wall called the wall of the Gentiles. It was there separating what was called, but they had a court of the Gentiles. Now what is that? That was a place where the Gentiles were invited and they would become what's called Gentile proselytites. They were invited to come to the temple to hear the gospel. And as they would then receive that gospel, I'm putting it in, in New Testament terms, but that's basically what it was, they would be, of course, admitted into the full uh, experience of the gospel in the temple. Now... Paul says this thing has gotten all messed up. It's become a dividing wall, not of invitation, but of hostility. The people hearing this probably would have known about the barrier, even if they had never visited Jerusalem. Why do I say that? Because the incident that had led to Paul's imprisonment involved one of their men in Ephesus, that Paul was in the temple when a mob falsely accused him of bringing Trophimus, Trophimus, of a, an Ephesian Gentile. In other words, imagine this. Paul said, hey, would you go to church with me? And he said, yes, I'd like to go to church with you. Well, that caused a riot with this kind of hatred, hostility, style, Gentilism, if you will, or, or Judaism against Gentiles. And one of their men, Paul was, and so then it goes on to say that how, how um, this led to a riot, which led to Paul's imprisonment, uh, this barrier in the temple symbolized now what? Not invitation, but hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And at the root of those hostilities are religious and ethnic pride on the part of the Jews. 
It's interesting, in 1871, there was a discovery. One of the two pillars found uh, there at that wall was found with the inscription, quote, no man of another race is to enter within the fence. An enclosure around the temple, whoever is called all will have himself to thank for the death which follows. That's how it had become bastardized by that time. A powerful symbol of alienation. They were strangers. Now, that's where we are. I hope you understand a little more about what racism is and what it involves. But now we turn the corner in verse 13, the death of hostility, a world with Christ. It starts with him explaining that this hostility that you guys are going through here, well, you know, it, it, it starts with a hostility with God. We've got to start there. A strangers to the gospel, a people who are not privileged to know the gospel. He says, quote, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. To those who are racist, he's saying, don't you realize that you one time were separated from Christ? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world? What does it mean to be separated from Christ? Well, I hope you have a sense of what that would mean. Without access to God. Without a reconciler. Without a mediator. Without grace and forgiveness. And reunion. Where perfect love cast out all fear. And therefore we love because he first loved us. They were alienated, we're told, from the commonwealth. And you need to understand what this means. The commonwealth, speaking of the polity, if you will, the government, the, the order, that God, you see, it's never been a gospel of just a message. Never. Sorry if you heard about that. I don't need to be religion joke. No, it's always, always been a gospel that forms a community. And within that community, we are reconciled to God. But the means by which that is happening is by the word and by the sacrament. And yes, by the communion of believers together, where we experience a kind of grace together that all the more invites the world to believe it because they see it. Different classes, different races, different genders whose ultimate identity now is not in any of those categories, but in Christ. And how in Christ, and the pattern of no longer having to prove myself or find false pride in my identity of this world, of this flesh kind of identity, but now finding my security and significance in, in Christ enables us to see one another in Christ in a deeper, more profound way than we see each other according to the flesh. This new community brought together in the covenants of promise. But how did this happen? What, 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 what's, what's the power? I'm still kind of getting there. And here's where I'm just, this is where I want to make sure you get it. It says in verse 15, how? How did all this happen? This reconciliation back together? Quote, 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new person in place of the two, so making peace, 
and might reconcile us both to God to one, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There it is. You see, here's the situation. Once they were far off from God, now they're brought near by the gospel. Once they were far off from each other because they had no greater identity, now they're brought near in the gospel. And how does this happen? By abolishing the law of commandments. Now, let me explain that. These commandments, by the time they came to the gen uh, this period particularly, um, had become commandments to distinguish us instead of invite us to the gospel. The cross is what? The cross, he says, in the blood of Christ. The cross is that focal point where we are reconciled by God. How? Not by ourselves and our own pride of self or self-righteousness, whether that's race righteousness, whether that's gender righteousness, whether that's family righteousness, whether that's class righteousness, all such self-righteousness is abolished because now we have what? Christ righteousness. He came. He satisfied righteousness for us. The true and eternal righteousness for us. And he did that for us that we might no longer be held accountable to our fulfilling or sustaining righteousness. So that now our righteousness, according to the cross, is the righteousness of Christ credited to us. Wherein I am now a righteous man. James in our healing services when they will say, let the righteous gather the elders get and pray. The prayer of a righteous man will be answered. Who's he talking about? Well, it would kill the whole spirit of our healing services. What he's talking about is until you get righteous, that is, satisfy all the law, because James will also argue that if you, you, you violate one even iota of the law, you violated it all. Do you know why, by the way? Because these all laws, plural, actual laws, are derived from one law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So just to, I don't know, envy or lust or gluttony or anything we do, it really comes down to rejecting God, violating our relationship with him. That's why James says, look, none of you are righteous. We read it today. None of you are righteous. So how then can John say, none of you are righteous? And if you think you're righteous, you're a liar. And then another passage come around and say, hey, unless you're righteous, your prayers aren't going to be heard. Well, the answer is very simple. He means a righteousness, an identity righteousness. Actually, I'm screwing up all the time. And I come every Sunday like you do, and I confess those sins, and oh God, here I am again. Oh, saying things I probably shouldn't say to public, but I can say them to God. Here I am again. I ask your forgiveness. And then I hear that beautiful absolution. You are forgiven, and you are righteous. You see, that's what's happening here in the cross. The cross is where you and I are made righteous. And what that means when it comes to your identity is huge. Because now I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to boast in my race or my family or my economic status anymore. I'm not getting my self-identity from that. That's not my source of security or significance in this world. The cross abolished the wall of hostility. Because hostility is 
rooted in pride, which is really insecurity, which is exactly where John Perkins took us. When through the eyes of a Christian, suffering unspeakable pain and suffering at the hands of a seemingly malignant race filled with hatred, he pitied them. He saw below the flesh and he saw a very insecure, troubled human being. The gospel is that powerful. Therefore, it goes on to say, peace with God. He brought peace. He brought peace. Four times, peace, 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 peace. Creating one new person who once were two persons, you see? Because you and me, and I'm loving that I'm looking even in a small congregation like this and see many races. You and me are the same. We're one. The blood that flows through my vein is the same exact spiritual DNA as the blood that flows through your vein, and that is the blood of Christ. You and me are one. It's a beautiful thing that he's saying here. Reconcile both to God as one by the cross. Me and God now are one. That was Christ's prayer, remember? Make them one, even as I am one, you to me, I with them. He goes through this whole thing over and over and over to say, man, there's a mystery here, but the cross, what I'm about to do is unite the human race in the grace of the gospel. And their peace with God and peace with one another. The cross, you see, changes everything. Our confession, 350 years old. Sometimes I wonder where it was in some of the centuries of our, of our existence. But here it is. This is our confession. All saints, saints are just Christians, by the way, righteous people in Christ. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his grace. Koinonia, communion with him in his grace, in his sufferings, in his death, in his resurrection and glory, and being united to one another in his love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces. You see, it goes one to the other. This is really cool. Partakers of God's promise in Christ by the gospel, he says. That's what we have. And so let me try to end here. But now in Jesus Christ, brought near by the blood of Christ. Not of this world, identity. Brother and sister, I ask you in the name of Christ, repent of all those identities that are of the flesh. I didn't make them bad identities, but they are surface identities compared to. And look, I, I know what I'm saying here. Uh, you can get a lot of pride and a lot of sense of self by your genealogy, your family name. But when it comes to the gospel, there's something much deeper and bigger because we're talking about our identity in God, the creator and maker of all those other identities. And so repent of making our primary identity of this world, of the flesh. It's not a blood unity or an ancestral history. It's not an ethnic unity. 
It's not a patriotic or national unity. It's not a lifestyle, socioeconomic unity. It's not a, I don't know, a chubby, clubby unity on shared cliches and personal interest and culture. It's not a demographic unity. It's not a generation unity. If I explored everyone I can think of, I'm sure you could help me with some. Repent. Turn away from those kind of unities. For they are the source. They are the fundamental source. If they're your fundamental identity of the pride that keeps us not only from Christ, but from one another. And so let me just uh, spell it out here, what it would look like and how we could get to the place where the wolf or the lion and the lamb are lying down together. You see, the Christian gospel tells us, first of all, let's be clear that racism is fundamentally wrong. It is sin. But racism is a bigger word than just ethnicity. It's a history. It's a family. It's socioeconomic realities. All of these things have to be dealt with in order to go to the cross and to the death of hostility. John Perkins is, uh, came up with what he called the three R's. And so here's what you and I can think and pray about doing as we remember Martin Luther King, as we remember this problem that we have in America and in, in the world, but doing so as a Christian. First of all, three R's, relocation, reallocation, reconciliation. Relocation, think about God in Christ. Christ relocated himself from a privileged place to an underprivileged place. He came to the poor in spirit. Now, regardless of what place you are, the gospel calls us to relocate ourselves, our identities, whoever we are, in a manner that can be then brought into proximity, and I mean spatial, time, proximity to others who are not of those same fleshly identities. There's a relocation that needs to take place. The majorities need to stand and get to know and, and involve themselves with the minorities and the minorities to the majorities, the, the poor to the rich, the rich to the poor, both. And on it goes. I was part of an experiment, I guess you could call it, in, in the transition from the old to the new south in, in, in de, uh, desegregation. Uh, my school was one of the schools in Atlanta that was one of the first cities in the country to do desegregation, and, and it resulted in a white flight like you couldn't believe. What were they flighting from? Well, you could say it was race. You could say it was race as identified with a socioeconomic reality that they only knew from a TV show. Whatever it was, they all did it with a love and interest for their children, believing the children, schools were going to go bad. I was one of those families. My parents yanked me out of my beautiful little pristine public high school called Dykes High School and sent me out to a boarding school. Of course, God had other plans. It's funny how he can use even sin and evil to do something good because I got kicked out for pot. And I went back to that school. And when I went to that school, I entered into hostility. But it changed my life. I never can talk about it uh, 
publicly without, I think, getting uh, teared up. It was just that impactful, probably the most impactful experience of my life. I've got in my head right now a man named George Peeler. You know, he was on the same football team. We had two football teams, black and white, wanting to kill each other. Contracts out, literally money on my knee. I was a starting halfback, and they wanted their halfback to be the starter. And they, my guys wanted my, did me to be the starter. And there was a contract. Well, I'll give you $100 if you take Graham's knee out. And, and it, they did it, and they took it out. George Peeler and I, George was on the other side, black man. And um, now look what's happening. We have been relocated. <laughs> We've been relocated forcefully, but we were relocated. And I don't know if my coach was just a really bad person or that he was a genius. I really don't know. But I do know this, that he chose us two as the representatives of kind of the groups. And every day before practice, he'd made us hit each other. He'd make us get hit. And George Peeler, he went to... Uh, uh, what was it, um, Virginia Tech, uh, West Virginia on a football scholarship as a tackle. Okay, get this. Okay, and I was probably 185, 90 pounds at the time, and he was probably around 250. But I was a little quicker. And so anyway, they'd make us, they would make us hit each other. We would just hit each other, and the crowds were rallying around both sides. Go, Graham. Go, Peeler. And we did this every time before, not every time, but just almost before every practice. It was crazy. George, Graham, get up there. Hit each other. And something happened. <laughs> something happened really magic. Because what happened is George and I started to love each other. And when we started to love each other, we started to see the pity of what was happening. And so did our other people. And while we didn't have the the uh, the, the we didn't have the we didn't have the uh, the end that, that remember the Titans if you saw the movie did, but it was kind of like that in inner city context. But we began to become friends. George Peeler went on, like I said, to play football in college. I uh, tried at Georgia and didn't make it. But he, uh, he then had to leave because of racism there. And he went to a place called Jacksonville State where he played football there in all-black college. I saw George a couple years ago, and he heard me walking through the room, evidently. We hadn't seen each other in 30 years, 20 years, a reunion. And I hear this voice, is that Graham I see walking through the door? Get your ass over here. <laughs> and we came and we started kissing. I kissed him. Just naturally, just we kissed. Re relocation is so crucial. You can get on the streets and scream and do all this other stuff, but you've got to know each other, to see each other, to feel each other beyond the flesh identities. And you will. And so I want to encourage you, if you want to remember this great holiday, make it your ambition this year to do something, to be intentional about crossing over the line or the wall of hostility, physically, one-on-one, two-on-two, whatever it takes. The second R was the R of uh, uh, reallocation. Relocation to reallocation. There's a history. There's power and money involved. There's all sorts of things. And the key thing here is that Christ came and he exchanged, think about, he exchanged power. It says that very clearly in Philippians 2, where 
Christ is described as emptying himself of his glory. And he empowered us to believe, empowered us to take control, if you will, of our destiny with God by inviting us to that faith. We see that over and over again. This idea of moving from entitlement to, and privilege to a needs-based asset, relocation, and empowerment. History has to be taken seriously. There are systemic issues that make one race less esteemed to another, and vice versa. And we've got to target some of that history. And where reparation needs to be made, it needs to be made. Because there's an empowerment. We have to give each other dignity. If there's anything I know about the gospel, it is that it gives you and me dignity. It doesn't take it away. My first encounter with a black person was as a child who had a helper in the house. Her name was Alice. She was uh, like a second mom, took care of me, was there all the time, almost, did my wash, cooked my food. My mother was in graduate school at the time as a musician, when I remember these days especially. She kind of became a mom, but, but there was always something different in that era. She was a servant. We all knew it. The kids acted out because we knew it. She was a servant. She was not, she had no power in this relationship. She was working hard to take care of her family, busing over an hour and a half from another side of Atlanta to get to our home every morning and every night. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we began to enter into transactions on a co-equal basis and where there's a transfer of power, of dignity, of self-worth. That happened to me in my high school. At least it began. My favorite teacher was a black woman. She had power over me. <laughs> Believe me, she was a powerful woman. And she was an amazingly loving woman. She's the only teacher that came to my wedding many years later, uh, Mrs. Stevens. And she probably had the most profound influence in my life of any teacher in the world, but she did so as a from a position of power. And I responded to that and saw in her her grace and her mercy and her compassion and her strength. And it was not long before I hardly recognized there was no, the race thing went away when there was power invested in dignity. It's important. And finally, just because of time, reconciliation. Union with one another out of our union with Christ. Again, love, respect, brother, sisterhood, equality. Uh, you know, gospel is never empty. The good news is never just news. It always involves, of course, a web of beliefs and practices, but it also always involves a social environment a Christian community. And so here's the thing. Reconciliation means forgiveness. Forgiveness, and you can forgive someone who personally hasn't even done any wrong to you. It's to forgive maybe the race. It's for, to forgive maybe the social class. You know, it's interesting in Atlanta right now. I go back and it's an incredibly integrated society because of all this deep integration that took place. 
desegregation. Very integrated. I, I love it. We live, we live in Westville. We chose that because we wanted to be in an integrated community. And what happens there is you start eating together and you start just, just ebb and flowing. And you begin to get to know people, all that relocation stuff. But what's very important is somewhere, somehow, we must get humble. All of us, all sides must get humble. And the gospel will do that to you. And to recognize that it was a sin, it always was, to profile a race. To profile a race as somehow being essentially synonymous with, say, a history or with whatever else identities you can think about. We have to forgive. We have to say, you know what? If your race has hurt me, if your class has hurt me, if, if your class in Atlanta right now, there's a struggle, I see it. Whereas the city becomes more integrated, at least there's one side that sees the Atlanta that they love going away. And they grieve and they get angry. But these are things that are related to their culture that are going away. They're no longer the majority. And on the other side, you can see some other things. We're going to push our minority, now the majority, upon the majority that was the majority, etc. I mean, Christians just don't act like this. Christians forgive. Christians start fresh. They reconcile by grace through faith in Christ. And I invite you to start with Christ today. Be reconciled to God. And watch the power of God infect you. And you will be reconciled one to another. Amen.